Hello and welcome to another edition of our Conversations with Podcast. My name is Christine Dean and I'm the Senior Director of SMI. Our podcast today features Kim Post, Executive Vice President and Chief Operations Officer from Honor Health, and SMI member Peter Brereton, CEO of Texas. Kim and Peter discuss the many innovations at Bonner Health. They discuss collaboration, the clinically integrated supply chain, and the next big thing coming in healthcare. Let's listen now to Kim and Peter. Hello, Kim. I want to thank you for being part of SMI's Conversations With podcast series. With your extensive clinical and business expertise, I know SMI members will find great value in hearing your insights on healthcare and leadership. You also have a particular focus on collaboration, and that's certainly what SMI is all about. So I'm excited to talk with you here today. It's a pleasure, thank you. Let's get started. Uh, You have an impressive leadership and clinical background, and I know you have been at Honor Health for quite, quite some time. How has healthcare evolved over the past 20 years, both clinically and in your leadership role at Honor Health? I think that's a great question. Actually, this year I'll have 40 years, right? Uh, uh, that I've been in healthcare. I started as a nurse at the bedside many, many years ago. And I was thinking about what's, what is different today? Because sometimes I get a little frustrated by some things that aren't different today. But the things that I think are different are, um, you know, patients are much sicker. There's a whole lot more choice for other sites of care than we had before. I mean, who would have thought that we would be not even admitting patients that needed care and just sending them home and running over and and doing treatments and care really in their home. Um, We know that that makes some challenges for us though in the acute setting and the health system with our hospitals, you know, it it dilutes it, dilutes our patient population in a different way. It makes it tougher. The patients who are here are sicker, requiring more care, more expertise, more competency. And so that's, that's been a challenge. And I think with, uh, you know, the rate of, the latest impact from the pandemic on our workforce makes it 10 times harder. So I'd say that's different. Administratively, I would say I see a lot more clinicians in uh, leadership roles. In our organization, we have a lot of physicians who are in leadership roles that are not necessarily roles you need to be a physician, but it's great to have that background. I think that sets the stage for better I'd say better decisions regarding care, obviously always having to be fiscally accountable, but really people who understand the impact um, and the complexity of patient care, bring that to the table when they make decisions. So we have several physicians, myself as a nurse, um, we have pharmacists that are now in leadership positions, really, I think uh, a very different group than probably 40 years ago. So I think that's a good thing. Is that interesting comment about uh, patients getting sicker, you know, being sicker today than they were in years past? I'm just, it makes me wonder that should, it seems to me, change the nurse to patient ratio. Has it in fact, or do you think we've sort of maintained the same ratios, even though the patients are much sicker on average than they used to be? You know, that's a great question. Plus we have a lot of uh, novice uh, clinicians as well, right? So should that change the, um, the, uh, ratios. I, I think our nurses would say we try to staff by uh, acuity, right? So we try to take all the things into consideration of a patient's clinical condition and we try to staff and, you know, we're come at it that way instead of just saying you get four, you get six, you get five. 
And I do think that is uh, true. And I think we do our best to do that. But because of the workforce shortages, it hasn't been ideal. So mm-hmm. as we start to look at, you know, the previous question, you said, what's different today? The, the care model is going to have to change. And we're going to have to look at other ways to add resources that may make an impact. For instance, uh, we're looking at uh, virtual care. And how can we have a virtual nurse, you know, adjunct the care that the patient's getting, you know, in person at the at the healthcare uh, site? So we're we're trying to be innovative and look at different ways. But um, but you're right, you know, I remember uh, patients who suffered a heart attack would be in the hospital for two weeks and they would be convalescing there. And now we're lucky to get them for two days. And so people had a baby and they were in for seven days. And now, you know, pretty much overnight and they're, they're going home or maybe the second day. So it's very, very different length of stay. And it's probably better in some ways for patients, I think, to adapt to the healthcare or to the home setting if we give them the resources to be able to do that successfully. But I do think you're right. And I think probably if you look at the workforce shortages, we're not going to be able to do much in the cost around that. But I think we'd have to look at ways to adjunct the care to make it easier for the staff. So you mentioned collaboration, and I know that that's a big initiative at Honor Health. Can you talk about the role of partnerships and how you see providers and suppliers working differently moving forward based on lessons learned from the pandemic? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think we're pretty good at partnering. Um, I think we have a lot of uh, partners that help us create a continuum of care. I think that our other supply chain partners, you know, that that's a two-way street. I think that you have to spend the right amount of time with your partners, um, fixing problems, communicating when things are good or bad, and uh, a process by which to do that. So I think we're, you know, even with our premier partnership, we, we've we created uh, mechanisms to continuously improve what that looks like on both fronts, right? So I think it, uh, very much a two-way street and very much uh, trying to optimize all the, os- uh, the opportunity in those partnerships. I think that our team has spent a lot of time um, as we develop new relationships during our uh, pandemic, I think there were some uh, new vendors that came into play and we've really tried to nurture that relationship because A, it might be you know in the States, might be local, but um, how do we uh, mitigate a problem up front that we know we're going to have if we have, um, you know, offshore uh, supplies um, that we can't get. So I think they've continued to think about it in a way that it could happen again. And this is what we learned. And this is what we need, we need to have in place to be able to do that. We, we do have a stockpile, I'll say, of supplies that we were just talking about the other day. And how do we manage that so that it's always fresh and um, it's something that we can go to in a, in a crisis. And we learned a lot of that, even from a state level of stockpile, that a lot of the stuff wasn't rotated, wasn't managed well, and was useless for us. So I think a lot of those uh, not so pleasant experiences, either not being able to get something because it was um, you know, manufactured in China or wherever, but also how could we nurture and help more local vendors um, so that we don't get in that predicament again. And then I think everybody's really trying to figure out what's the balance, what is the stockpile look like for each organization? You don't, I mean, there's millions of dollars in that, right? You don't want to have too much. You don't want to have uh, not enough. 
but you also need to make sure that you're rotating that and it's it's very usable and it will be sufficient in a in a crisis. So I think our team is constant constantly looking at that too. Some of the things that still happen, um, you know, our supply chain team still meets uh, regularly with uh, leaders to manage uh, shortages because, as you well know, it's not you know a perfect scenario. It's not like 2018 again. And we still have a lot of shortages, especially um, in key areas um, in pharmaceuticals, right? Pharmaceuticals have been probably even more challenging, even simple stuff like lidocaine, which you would think would be ridiculously you know, cheap, um, but it's, it's just not being manufactured in a way that is keeping us all supplied. So we keep a great oversight of that. We try to manage shortages in any supply or impending shortages through our daily management system. So I described to you daily meetings that would escalate problems up or could cascade information down. We still use that process daily. So we have a lot of huddles, hundreds of huddles at department levels that occur every day. And those huddles then send information up uh, through a process, um, trying to actually mitigate that at certain levels. If it makes it to my huddle, which is the network huddle, um, it's a very big barrier or it is a safety issue that we all need to know about. So we've held on to that. And um, I think in that particular instance, we, we talk about uh, supply shortages that, um, that are, people are getting nervous about or you know maybe the PAR level wasn't replenished and they have to have some information on that. So we escalate those pretty well. And then our supply chain team is on that from a network level. We try to understand it, see if we can move things around. Maybe we're, you know, blessed with more supplies at another hot site. And then we also put it on a, a list to say, hey, do we need to have some conservation plan? And so a lot of times we'll put a, con a conservation plan together. We have our utilization review um, physician. She, she puts a lot of those together from a clinical perspective and works with the pharmacy or with the clinicians that are using the supply make sure that we have something we can use and we put the conservation plan together, get that out very quickly, and then we monitor it. So I think that process of collaboration and participation is what keeps us um, whole right now because of all the issues that we see in the supply chain across the country. Okay, I know uh, many, uh, many providers these days are running into challenges with talent and talent management. Can you talk a little bit about how Honor Health works to recruit and retrain or retain new employees? And also, you know, how do you incorporate diversity and inclusion in that talent process? I think that's a great question. So, you know, from our supply chain, we have a real stable group until we lost our, our recently lost our VP of supply, the supply chain. And we're working to understand that role and to refill it. But we've had very stable um, leadership in that, which is, I think, a blessing in a time when it's not been very stable anywhere. So um, I think that that is great. And I think that's because they uh, are a very cohesive team and they create a culture there that people really want to work in. In 2021, they achieved the Gardner Top 20, excuse me, Top 25. And, um, and that's a very competitive process, right? It wasn't easy and it was at a time when um, everybody's struggling, right? So I think they are a, a great gem in our organization that has really, like many systems across the country, suffered from workforce issues. 
So we have a, a strategy called recruit, retain, and grow. We have tactics under each one of those. We focus on recruiting the very best, although these days we've had to recruit a lot of very best novices, new grads, things like that. And we've had to beef up the infrastructure to onboard those people. We have a very uh, substantive grow uh, plan, basically growing people to uh, their desire. Maybe they want to be a nurse. Maybe they want to be a scrub tech, whatever it is. But we've partnered with a lot of programs in the the, um, area to make sure that we can help people grow uh, professionally and um, continue the pipeline with our employees. And then, um, you know, the retention plan, uh, our turnover is a little over 17%. It was 29% in um, January. And we have never seen turnover at that degree, but now a little over 17 feels much, much better. It's not where we were prior to the pandemic, but it's stable, at least for the last three, four months, it's been stable. And so we're starting to try to now catch up with a lot of these openings. So we have a focus on well-being, and that's part of that retention piece is the well-being is uh, part of our, I'd say, part of our culture. We, uh, during the COVID uh, pandemic, we didn't stop asking and uh, surveying our staff. A lot of places did because they knew it would be, it would be bad, so why do it? We did because we really wanted to put things together that would make it make a difference and make it better. And so we just uh, put into place a VP of uh, well-being, patient experience. It's a physician who is a primary care uh, physician here in our group, uh, Dr. Tiffany Penko, and she's started to really execute on uh, a center for well-being with care for the caregiver resources and creating a culture of well-being in our organization for clinicians, but also anybody else that is is suffering because of sort of the current crisis. Along with that, she's leading a group on diversity. And uh, that DEI work is becoming part of that role. And we'll be hiring a formal leader for that probably in the next year. Um, Right now, we have a steering committee, and we're all focused on that and trying to then ingrain uh, cultural changes that will enable all leaders to make that a consideration as they are looking for uh, new staff for the organization. So um, the other thing that we've done in DEI, which I think is going to help with our recruitment piece, is we've started these uh, resource groups. So we have people resource groups. I think we have three right now. And we're getting ready to add four more. They've been very successful. And they actually want to um, have an impact on our recruitment process. For the, for instance, we have a Latinx, is what they were called in the beginning. Now it's Cultura. And they really focus on Hispanic uh, population. And they're looking at ways in which we can grow uh, that, that uh, workforce in our organization and how we can make a more uh, friendly organization for that. They also are looking at ways we can impact uh, patient outcomes um, with uh, certain tactics that they're looking at. So they're very engaged. We have a, a female physician um, work group that is just focused on physician uh, female physicians becoming leaders. And we also have a veterans group. And we're looking at ways. We have a very um, aligned culture with a, from a partnership we have with the military. And we do a lot of training where the we're the single site, the community healthcare site in the country that does a lot of military training. And in that um, 
a lot of veterans are attracted to our organization. So we have one of those as well. And they're trying to impact how we recruit and grow in, in that population as well. So they have a lot of great uh, ideas. That sounds great. I, I see we're pretty well out of time. So I'm going to combine two questions here uh, right. and, uh, and let you sort of run with it however you, however you want to. So uh, first part of the question, uh, there's no question that if we're going to create a better patient experience, we've got to find a way to encourage clinicians to be more engaged in the supply chain. We need that involvement. We need that collaboration. So the question is, how do you encourage clinicians to be more involved in the and, and engaged in the supply chain and the supply chain process? And then the second and somewhat unrelated question, uh, what's the next big thing in healthcare? Those are big ones. So the how, I, I actually am, as I told you, the COO, previously our supply chain reported up through finance. I don't think that's an unusual thing, but I do think you're going to see um, more supply chain um, resources reporting through operations because I think that's where the connection is, right? I always talked about, you know, you can work so hard on, and they do. And I think they have a lot of best practice in how much we pay for something um, and how do we get it? And then how do we get it to the people who are going to use it once it gets there? But we have less impact or less uh, influence on what they use or how many of they use of it, right? So, so really uh, aligning it with operations um, and really working with this team to sort of understand where we have opportunity is, is just what you're talking about. Now that means clinicians, that means physicians, that means service line development, that means all of that. So we're working really on a process where we can align more. Um, you know, we had a meeting last night to really look at uh, implant, total joint implant costs, which I think everybody across the country does. We started to include the service lines in that plan and that strategy, um, and they will be a part of that execution all the way around. So it's not going to just be, hey, this is what we want to do. You do it supply chain, but it's in lockstep as a team. And we will be meeting with physicians as a team to really move that. I think the more transparency you are able to give a clinician about cost and opportunity, um, how well you listen about why they need it, even if it doesn't fit that you know, priority from a cost perspective. And then I think understanding that there's got to be some gives and some gets in that I think is, is critically important. So I think setting up the process so there is collaboration, that it's not just, hey, you know, dump it on supply chain to execute. Um, and then a lot of times people feel a victim of that, right? But they didn't plug in to the process of decision. So they've got to become part of, part of that process. And I think um, I think we we're we're really working towards that and really trying to make an impact on the PPI piece of the supply chain. The other piece I would say, what's going to change? I think there's going to be a lot more virtual options. Um, being a nurse for many years, when they said, "Oh, we can have a virtual nurse," I'm like, "That's there's no way you can have a virtual nurse." I mean, they need to touch a patient, right? But I'm telling you, I've seen some really good examples of uh, virtual nursing that is very impactful to patients. So I think you're going to see more care in the home and resources to help that be safe. And I think we're going to have to train a workforce that's comfortable with that. Um, we have a partnership. We're using predictive analytics, machine learning, and behavioral science in some software that helps us with throughput. So we haven't used that type of thing to help make decisions about throughput, and we're really uh, starting to sort of lay that over our uh, EMR so we can use real-time clinical information that makes it visible to everyone. So for instance, if you're in the ED 
and you're overwhelmed, you do things that just focus on your on your ED. And if you knew you could make a decision that would be better for the whole house and patients that are moving through the entire hospital, would you make that decision? And and that's what we're trying to do is, is use some technology to open up the visibility to opportunities that might exist that would impact, you know, sort of the greater good instead of just your five beds in front of you. So I think using some of that creativity and innovation is going to help us probably make better decisions, not waste a lot of time, uh, help impact the complexity of the work um, to make it, you know, make it simpler and um, more streamlined, get rid of waste and um, be able to optimize opportunities as we start to see the data, right? You get a lot of data and you see there's bottlenecks. We try to fix the discharge process. I always say that's like fixing world hunger, right? But if you knew one part of the discharge process that you could change that would make the rest, you know, awesome, what is it? We gotta have the data figure that out. So we're starting to get that information. And then you also, using behavioral science, have to give them options that they're gonna wanna do or they're gonna wanna pick. You have to sort of present it in a way that's gonna be, I don't know, attractive to to the providers and the leaders who are, you know, managing the patient population. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that and um, a lot more creative ways to care for patients and it won't necessarily be standing at their bedside. Excellent. Well, Kim, this has been a very informative session. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us and to be part of SMI's podcast series. On behalf of the SMI community, I want to thank you and thank you for all the great work you and your entire team at Honor Health are doing. I wish you well. Take care. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to our Conversations with podcast. And thank you also to Kim Post from Honor Health and Peter Brereton from Texas. Please look for our next Conversations with podcast coming soon from SMI. Thank you and take care.